what do you do while you wait? Much of our lives are spent waiting. You know, sometimes it's the small things, waiting for the doctor as you sit in that waiting room for 45 minutes. Sometimes it's the big things. You look at the big picture. Some of us are eagerly waiting for that moment when Jesus comes back and we get to spend forever with him in his kingdom. The Bible says we should be waiting for that. Uh, Some of us are waiting for a surgery that we need or a promotion at work or a missions trip or for a trial to pass. We spend a lot of our lives waiting What do we do while we wait? That's a good question. And I think we see an answer in the passage that we're looking at today as the Apostle Paul goes to the city of Athens. And you'll see why it is, I believe, he's just waiting there. As you turn to your Bible, Acts 17, verse 13, we're going to see first how he ended up there. Now, just as a backdrop, you'll remember there were some cities Paul went to that were so obviously the call of God, like the city of Philippi. You remember, God gave him a vision. Hey, come here. We need you. That was like Paul knew. This is, I'm going here on a mission. It was different in Athens. Verse 13 says that when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So in other words, he's in this city called Berea, he's preaching, and trouble sets in. And he's got to get out of there for his safety, right? 17 verse 14 says, The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. The trouble set in, he had to get away for his safety And he headed down to Athens. Now check out what it says in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens. He's just waiting there for his partner Silas and Timothy to come join him. But what did he do while he waited? Did it become all about Paul? Like, hey, I'm just going to do some sightseeing. Take it easy. See what this city has to offer. Now, what he did and what I think we can learn from is he did three things, and we're going to go through each of them. First, he looked around. He was very aware of what was going on in this city of Athens. Second, he engaged that city. And third, he used the culture of that city as a bridge to the truth about Jesus Christ. He looked around, he engaged the culture, and he used that culture as a bridge to talk about the truth of Jesus Christ. I think that's a good model for us. Athens was a city in decline at this point in history. Many of you know about all that happened in Athens. Three or four centuries B.C., it became the first democracy that we know of in history. It was famous for its art and its philosophy, its buildings. But that was three or four centuries prior to when Paul got there. By the time he got there, it had been ravaged a couple times in war. And there were only about 10,000 people living there. Yeah, they still had some universities that people would come to from around the world to get educated. But it was in its decline. I think... 
culture in decline may be a relevant message. (laughs) Just the buzz I get out there when you talk to folks about where we're at in our country, whether whether you look at the the moral decline, whether you look at the biblical illiteracy in our country, the uncertainty about national health care, or even the fact that it just seems that nobody in Washington can get along on anything. There's a general feeling that we're a culture in decline. So, so what do we do about that? I mean, there's a, a temptation, right, to say, I'm going to go bury my head in the sand. I'm going to go hide out in my church. I'm going to hide out in my Bible. And obviously, we need all the, those things. But if we look at what Paul did, he did anything but bury his head in the sand. He looked around. He was very aware of what was going on. There's a group of men in the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament that were described like this. They were described as the men of Issachar who understood their times and knew what they should do. They understood their times and knew what they should do. That should be a great description of the church of Jesus Christ in the world today. We should know our times. We should be aware of what's going on in our culture. We should be reading the news. We should be engaging with people out there, seeing with eyes wide open what is going on. I don't know how many of you guys heard recently about what happened on a train in the San Francisco area. There's a college student named Justin, 20 years old, went to a college in San Francisco. He's riding the train, as are many other people. And a man stood up on the train and and pulled a gun out. And he walked around the train car waving it back and forth, back and forth. Three or four times he waved his gun around as though he was choosing who he's going to shoot. He even wiped his nose with it one time like this. And and then he picked at random this young college student named Justin and shot him in the back, killed him on the train. The district attorney said the thing that really struck him when he watched the security camera video back is that nobody on that train car even noticed the danger because they were all doing this. Two to three feet away from where the man pulled out this gun. You think, wow, if just one of them had seen what he was about to do to that young college student They could have jumped him and at least tried to stop what was about to happen. They could have stopped the physical danger, but their heads were buried in their own little world. I want to take that and go to from physical danger to spiritual danger. And I want to ask us as a church, spiritually speaking, is that where we're at? We're so busy engaged in our own stuff, in our own world, that we're not even aware of the spiritual need and hurt around us? Are we aware of the the tear-stained face of the waitress that, that serves us at the restaurant that maybe needs us to say, hey, could I pray with you? It looks like maybe you're having a rough day. Are, are we aware when our boss comes into work 10 minutes late scrambling and, and puts his head down on his desk just... Distraught? Are we aware enough to say, hey, what's going on? Can I, you need an ear? Can I, can I pray with you? Are we aware? Are we 
so busy in our own little world. Paul was aware. Verse 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, listen to this, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Athens was known for having tons and tons of different gods and idols you could worship. Some people have said it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a person. Like every corner, there's a different idol to worship. Do you see Paul's response to that when he saw that? He looked around and saw that. What's it say? He was, are we awake? (laughs) Greatly distressed. (laughs) Thank you. How many of you feel that way when you look around the world today? This inner unrest, like, wow, something is wrong out there. It's broken. That's how he felt, because he knew these idols were not the true God that could bring the hope and peace that these people needed. It, it distressed him. But he was aware. He looked around. Second, he engaged. Check out what he did. He didn't just get distressed and say, boy, I'm going to just hang out over here by myself until Silas and Timothy get here because this place is messed up. That's not what he did. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue. You remember that's where the Jews in cities met. He went there, talked to them about Jesus with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, but not just in the synagogue. It says, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. He's going to the synagogue and he starts to talk to these folks about the Jesus that they need. He goes to the marketplace. He starts to talk with them about the Jesus that they need. Verse 18 says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. You got two groups here Historians have spent a lot of time describing these two schools of philosophy, the Epicureans and the Stoics, but Warren Wearsby summed it up briefly, and I think it'll do for where we're at this morning. The Epicureans were about enjoying life. The Stoics were about enduring life. Epicureans said enjoyment is the ultimate aim, and often it was a lofty kind of enjoyment, like this avoidance of pain. Sometimes it became very sensual. Stoicism's like, hey, just keep all feelings out of it. Let's just endure this and get through this life. You can imagine that both of those systems, if you've tried either of those lines of thinking, leave you empty. Because as Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, everything under the sun is vanity. In other words, it's empty, it's meaningless, it's passing like a vapor. So if you make just simple enjoyment for enjoyment's sake, your ultimate goal without God, you're destined for disappointment. If you make just making it through day after day after day your goal, obviously that leads to disappointment. Paul knows these people need a personal relationship with God if they're going to have the meaning they're after. But they responded uh, not too favorably when he started talking about this. It says, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Babbler is bad enough in English, but when you break down what that Greek word, where that came from means, it basically is the picture of a bird picking up scraps on the ground. And it came to mean anyone that went around gathering different ideas from different places and then just tried to spit them back out as best they could. They didn't really know what they were talking about. They're just like gathering all this stuff and then blah. That's how they saw Paul as this babbler. 
Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Obviously, that's what Paul always preached, right? Jesus and the resurrection. Now, I think about Paul, and I see him engaging this culture. I think about all the pictures that Jesus used for believers in this world. He called us salt, right? Salt's no good unless you put it on the meat. He called us light, and he said, light's no good if you hide it. You got to get it out there. He called us yeast, and yeast is no good if it stays in the pantry. It's got to get into the dough and mix its way through. That's, that's what you see Paul doing here, and he wants to tell them that, hey, Jesus is the only way to find the hope that you're after. Verse 19 says, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was this big meeting place where they would all come together and talk about ideas. Early on in the history of Athens, they would have official court councils there and huge decisions were made. By this time, it was more of a discussion place and and there were some city officials that liked to sort of regulate the flow of conversation in the city, make sure it's not getting too out of hand. So they want to hear It's not an official trial, but it's kind of like, hey, we want to hear what this guy's talking about, see if we should let it continue. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, they said to him. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Some of them may have genuinely just been curious. Others may have been looking to say, hey, can this continue or not? Verse 21, Luke, the author of Acts, gives us Almost a little bit of a derogatory comment about the the folks in Athens. He says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. (laughs) He's like, all these people do is talk. Talk, 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 talk. And they're always looking for something new. Always looking for the, the latest buzz. But Paul's in this context It says he stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. And before we get into his speech, I want to tell you that third point. He looked around. He engaged the culture. And this is where we're going to start to see how he used the culture as a bridge to the truth about Jesus. Verse 22. It says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, I want to point out something here. Peter would later write that when we engage the world about Jesus, we are to do it with gentleness and respect. That's what I see Paul doing in his introduction here. He looks around at these hundreds, if not thousands of idols and say, hey, I can see you're very religious. He's being respectful as he starts into this. He's going somewhere. He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. And here was what was on this altar, to an unknown God. It was almost like they wanted to make sure all their bases were covered. So they got all these named gods, you know. So just in case we're missing a God, we'll make one to the unknown God. That way we're covered. Archaeologists have found some of these altars to unknown gods. 
he talks about that idol to the unknown God, and he says, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He's going to use this altar to an unknown God, and he's basically saying, I know the unknown God that you're talking about. I'm going to tell you who he is. He uses their culture to bridge into the truth about the real God. Because these idols were on everybody's mind in that culture. So he uses something that they're thinking about. And I thought about today, what is it that's on everybody's mind in our country right now? Health care, yes. And I thought about that and I thought, man, you know, everybody's talking about it. How do we use that as a bridge to the truth? And regardless of how you feel about it, you know, there's basically three camps, right? My ultimate hope, is in government, my ultimate hope is in myself and my own ability, or my ultimate hope is in God and his ability to take care of me. It's a great launch point to say, where are you really putting your trust? Regardless of how this all shakes out, are you putting your ultimate trust in the government? Are you putting your ultimate trust in yourself? Or are you putting your ultimate trust in God? Great launch point for some meaningful conversation. So he uses that and he starts to tell them about this real God. He says, the God who made the world, that's the first thing he's gonna tell them. Listen, the real God is the creator. He created all this. He created you. He's the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He says this with temples in sight that these people valued. He's like, God's bigger than all this. He created the world. He created you. He's the Lord of it all. And here's the second point. He is self-sufficient. He does not need anything from anyone. Okay? He says he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, we need him. He says he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He goes on to tell him, from one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. This was a smack in the face of the Athenians because we know from history, they believed they were a special people, like better than all the rest of the people. Like all the other people are sort of these barbarians, we're better. Paul's saying, no, we all came from one man. Adam and Eve, remember, we all came from the same blood, we're we're all equal And God marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God is the God of history. And here's why he did this. Here's the third point that for true satisfaction, we must find him. Nothing else will do it. He says, God did all this. He created us. He made all the nations. He determined times in history, boundaries of their lands so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. I've heard stories about this that would blow your mind. Sometimes we imagine how in the world could someone buried deep in a a Middle Eastern country where Islam is the dominant force ever hear about Jesus. I've heard stories from people I love and trust. Sometimes they'll be sleeping and they'll have a dream where Jesus meets them in a dream and they wake up knowing about a savior named Jesus who died for them and rose again. So when it says God is not far from any one of us, he means that. God is 
not far from anyone in this world. He wants us to reach out for him and find him. Verse 28 and 29, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring in a natural sense that he created us all, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In other words, God made us. We don't make him. He made us. And this last part's cool. Verse 28 and 29. You see those things are in quotes there. For in him we live and move and have our being. And we are his offspring. They're in quotes because those were things that were in their stories about their mythical gods. Zeus and other gods. Those are quotes from some of their poems. You can Google them and read the whole poems. These words were originally written about Zeus. Paul is using things in their culture. He's aware of their culture, using them to point them away from Zeus to the real God. And he gives us an example there. I believe that we we should be busy doing the same things. As we're aware of our culture and things that are out there, we should use them to point to the real God. I think about song lyrics. Some of you have heard me talk about this song before. Uh, it came out in 2003, but here's one example. And this is not necessarily a Christian band. Okay, this is a popular song in 2003. Bring Me to Life by Evanescence. Some of you guys will remember these lyrics. Listen to them. How can you see into my eyes like open doors, leading you down into my core where I've become so numb? Without a soul, my spirit's sleeping somewhere cold until you find it there and lead it back home. Wake me up. Wake me up inside. I can't wake up. Wake me up inside. Save me. Call my name and save me from the dark. Bid my blood to run before I come undone. Save me from the nothing I've become. There's another part in the song that says, Frozen inside without your touch. Without your love, darling, only you are the life among the dead. They may or may not be Christian, I don't know, but that song was popular and you talk about those heart cries for I feel dead inside and only you are the life among the dead. Man, what a, what a great bridge. I know who that life among the dead is. It's Jesus. I know that heart cry she's talking about. I know the only ultimate answer is Jesus. You think about movies. How many of you saw The Life of Pi? This is a beautiful artistic movie. Much of it is about a young man named Pi in a boat with a, with a tiger and a hyena and an orangutan. If that doesn't catch your interest, I don't know what will. <laughs> Me and Carolyn watched it a few weeks ago. And basically... What's going on in the movie is the grown-up Pi, who years after this adventure in the boat, is telling his story to a reporter. And he tells his story first with all the animals, and then near the end of the movie, he tells the reporter, hey, the true story wasn't really animals. Those were just symbolic of people that were in the boat with me. And so the reporter's a little bit confused, and they have this conversation. The, the grown-up Pi, who told the story, says, which story do you prefer? 
And the writer says, the one with the tiger, that's the better story. And the adult pie says, thank you. And so it goes with God. Point being, what the, 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 one of the major thrusts of that movie is, hey, whichever path you choose to God is okay. You can believe in Jesus, or you can believe in Allah, or you can believe in Vishnu. Whatever you choose, whatever you like better, is your path to God. Do I believe that for a second? No. That's not what the Bible teaches. But this is a great launch pad in a conversation with someone to say, is that how you feel about God? And as you begin to share from a biblical standpoint, one, one way you could start out is just say, hey, is it at least possible that there's only one God? Just theoretically go with me. Is, it, is that at least possible? Is it at least possible that if there's one God, he could decide that there's only one way to get to him? Yeah. If there's one God, he has the right to decide that. Now, if someone came as a human and claimed to be that way, what would you expect to see in that person? Would you... Power, yeah. I expect to see him healing some people of some incurable sicknesses, maybe raising some people from the dead. I'd, ex- I'd expect a lot of love and a lot of wisdom. Hey, why not? If he's really God, he could even rise from the dead himself, right? And you just begin to engage the conversation. Rather than hiding in the sand and saying, I'm not seeing that movie because it has a different worldview, you use it as a... Launchpad into the conversation. What about news stories? Staying up to date on what's going on in our world. Being men and women who understand the times and know what to do with them. There, there was another one recently on CNN that got me thinking. I think we need to be aware of it. You think of the ongoing conversation in our country about abortion. There was a, a case in Florida. I don't know if you read about it. There was a boyfriend and a girlfriend. She became pregnant. She wanted the baby. He did not. He slipped her, without her knowing, an abortion pill. The baby died. She found out what happened, told the authorities, and he is now charged with murder under a condition called the Unborn Victims of Violence Act. The sentence is a lifetime sentence if he's indicted or charged on that as guilty. Now you just think about the, the irony in this story, right? If as our, much of our country tells us is just a part of her body, he didn't murder anybody. And if he murdered somebody, it's more than just a part of her body. But an advanced society like ours has no room for that kind of logic, right? We decide what's true based on what we want. If she hadn't wanted the the baby, we wouldn't be hearing about it. It would have been just a part of her body. But because she did, it was a human being. As you engage someone in conversation, you could ask them this. Are we really comfortable with deciding whether or not someone's a human based simply on what one person thinks? Or should we be looking for a more objective basis for the truths we believe? Something bigger than us, something outside of us, 
like a God who says we are all created in the image of God. Do we really want to go down this path where one person can decide whether another person's human or not? What about when I'm 95 and I'm in my, my bed and I'm sick and I can't get out and people start thinking of me as less than human? Let's put him down. He's an inconvenience. The irony goes like this. Think about the African-American slave trade, right? Many of those slave owners chose to think of their slaves as less than human. And they treated them as such. And we recoil at that idea that one human would be degraded by the mere choice of another. But you fast forward to a baby in a mother's womb. And many who commit abortions today think of that unborn baby as less than human. And they treat them as such. And yet most of our country rejoices in the freedom to degrade the value of another human being by the mere choice of a mother. Why is one okay and the other horrible? It, it makes no sense. And so you begin to engage, do we really want what someone thinks about another person to be the basis of truth or do we look for a more objective standard such as God's word? And to go beyond the abortion issue, just truth in general, you could launch from that to say, what is the source of our truth? Do you, is it really how you feel about something or is there someone, some God who really decides what is true and we better find out what it is because we need him. We need his love in our lives. He used cultural references to, to speak into the truth about God. We, we can do the same thing today. And, and he goes on to tell him, verse 30, here's where he's going to get to tell him, okay, guys, it's great to talk about ideas. You talk about ideas till you're blue in the face. At some point, you've got to make a choice. It says in verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What he's saying is until Jesus came and died on the cross, he never really poured out his full judgment on sin because he was gracious. Yes, there were occasional instances where he, there was punishment, but he's saying he never really poured out his full wrath on sin until his own son was on the cross and, and he poured our punishment on his own son. That's one of the crazy things about God and Jesus' love for us is that he poured out the full punishment on Jesus in our place. But now that Jesus has come, he commands all people everywhere to repent. He doesn't ask them. He says, you need to change your mind about who Jesus is and where you put your hope. Now, he does that because he's righteous, but he also does that because he's loving. He knows that there is no other real hope than his son, Jesus Christ. Change your mind from trusting in your own works, your own ways, to believing in Jesus as your Savior. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He's saying this very Jesus that died to save you and invites you to believe in him, who rose again, will one day judge everyone. And the only criteria will be, did you place your trust in me? He used their culture 
to bridge to a very pointed message about the God of love that they needed to embrace. Here's their response. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. He was actually a member of this council. It's pretty cool. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Paul went into this city in decline. He looked around, he engaged the culture, and he used the culture as a bridge to the truth about a Savior that loved him so much he died for him and rose again. So as we close, I just want to challenge us. If, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're looking around and sometimes the world is discouraging, is this the, the model you're following? Is your ultimate hope in Jesus? That's really... Paul, Paul didn't go in there and try to fix the government. Or, and I'm not saying we don't get involved and we don't vote appropriately and things like that. But his ultimate hope was in the power of the gospel to change human lives from the inside out. Because in the end, God's kingdom is the only kingdom that is going to last forever. It's as though he walked into Athens and said, you, you want to be holding on to that kingdom. Because all these other kingdoms are going to fall. God's kingdom will last forever. Are you looking around? Are you engaging the culture? And are you using it to bridge the truth of the life of Jesus?